and the story of Hanukkah. And I'm not referring to the story of Hanukkah like the famous joke that all festivals are about. They came, they wanted to kill us. We won, let's eat. Uh, which is kind of, someone said that this is a sum up of all the Jewish festivals, which is actually not true, but it's, I'm not even referring to that. Even in a more detailed way, the way we tell the story of Hanukkah more or less is the Jews were living in the land of Israel, la di da di da, and said, you can't do Shabbat, you can't do circumcision, you can't do this. And the Jews said, oh, yeah, oh, no, we don't agree with that. And we're going to hit you now. So, and so they started fighting, and the Jews won. But they managed, before leaving the temple, managed to uh, spill all the oil. And the Jews were like, really, really, really in a pickle. Saying, oh, how do we do now for the menorah? And they found an oil, a small pitcher, and they, they lit it for one day, and it lasted for eight days. Mazel tov, mazel tov, let it some latkes, some donuts. Yes. Why were they lighting the menorah in the first place? No, there was a constant menorah in the base of Oh, that's what they were lighting it for? Yeah, it had to be lit daily. And so, the, and this is it. It's it. The way we tell the story of Hanukkah is told in a very sterile manner. It's almost told in a manner of once upon a time in a yeah. distant galaxy. <laughs> something yeah, like that. Yes, exactly. A capsule of its own, once upon a time, in Never Never Land. Uh, uh, the, there was like mythical people called the Greeks, mythical people called the Chashmanai, and something, tada, happened. And thanks to that, we, ate, we eat donuts or uh, latkes. I don't know how you say latkes in English. Potato pancakes. Potato pancakes. I learned something extraordinary today, extraordinary, interesting today. I never would have guessed. Because you see, the uh, potato pancakes have such a bad rep because you can actually see the oil dripping off them, right? <laughs> well, a, a standard potato pancake has 65 calories. A standard doorknot has 350 calories. <gasps> yes. A standard doorknot, standard, without the cream and the jelly, just the doughnut is 350 calories. A standard piece of latka is 65 calories. It just has a bad rep because it's like leaking oil. So you have the impression. It's like, yes, exactly. It appears it can, can really be deceiving because actually the pancake, I mean, it has some oil, but it's not so bad because it's basically potato. I mean, it's, uh, it's basically potato. So potato and egg. Exactly. You see, it's, 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 it's really that. The pancake, the little pancake, you see the oil dripping off it. So you say, wow, that's full of oil. No, it's not actually. It's full of potato and egg. It's just, no, uh, that's exactly. The donut is completely soaked in the oil. Uh, a, a donut, if the, when I said that, I read that, I read a, a, a jelly, a jelly with the donut. It's 440 calories. I said, no. What? 440 calories? <laughs> Say, yes. Like, yeah, I know. I'm telling you that on the eve of Hanukkah. Yeah, I know. It's not fair. I should have told you that after Hanukkah, right? No, but you can always eat a small... For the, it's a minhag to eat oil 
baked, fried uh, uh, food. Yeah, exactly. Or you could just take a small slice of a donut. You just do. I'm Yoitze, you know. Or you could just take a piece without the thing. Yes, of course. Well, listen, it's only 440 calories. It's not the end of it. <laughs> That's almost a meal. No, maybe not. Well, yeah, it's not very far. Okay, let's get back on track. So, let's tell the story of Hanukkah not in a time bubble, not in a sterile but really understand the context in which it takes place, what happens before, what happens during, and what happens afterwards. Not in an insulated way that it's told and regularly when we tell just the holiday of Hanukkah. So let's start from the building of the second temple. The second temple was built... You know what, I'm not going to start with years for the moment. It was built whenever the Jews came back from Babylon, and they... They were then living under Persian rule. Very interesting thing to keep in mind. Yes. When the first temple was destroyed, the Jews lost their political autonomy, lead, uh, kingdom, as much as their religious center, which was the Holy Temple. When they came back, they recovered, they were allowed to build back the temple, but they did not recover independency. They came back under uh, Persian rule, and they were Persian. Okay, it's not. It's anachronistic to say citizens because more subjects, Persian subjects uh, of the Persian Empire, which was their biggest empire of the time. They stayed like this for quite some time, living under Persian rule and having a base amigdash. You know what it would be like. It would almost be like Lehavdil, no, not many. as if uh, Israel today was like um, uh, San Domenico, uh, Dominican Republic, Domingo. San Domingo, which actually belongs to the U.S. but has kind of a special status, if I'm not mistaken. No, so this island, huh? Puerto Rico. Oh, Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Puerto Rico. Meaning, it, yeah, it does belong to America. It has a kind of a different status in some aspects. Imagine Israel being like Puerto Rico, which basically would mean that all Israelis would have American passports. But still, you would have the Jewish holidays and the kosher. You, get, you still have the local flavor. But citizenship-wise, it would be American. How would Israelis fare? Well, I get a lot of Israelis, I'm not sure if they would mind. Because that's not what being Jewish is about, I mean, only. So as long as you can do Torah, you can do mitzvot, you can do etc., etc., the fact that you're under Persian rule or under American rule, what difference does it make? You could think so, but let's continue. So, the second temple was built. I'm going to tell you something now that you have to keep in mind because it's going to come back towards the end of the class. The second temple was a pale copy of the first temple. And I'm not referring only to the fact that its splendor physically was like 
really not so splendid. I'm also talking about the spiritual um, dimension of the second temple. The, spiritual, the spirituality in the second temple was very low-key. Namely, there was no divine revelation. Whereas in the first temple, there were constant miracles. There was the high priest that had a pectoral, meaning a plaque that had stones that would light up, etc., etc. All kinds of like, like magic happening all over the place. The second temple had none of it. Whereas in the first temple, you had prophets coming and going. Thus speaks the Lord, etc., etc. Second temple, nothing. Actually, the second base Amigdash was a big shul with the particularity of everything that had to do with, with the sacrifices and the altar, etc., etc. Besides that, it was a shul. Did the Nisim that were particular to the base of Mikdash, like when we were doing certain, like not having the flies and being able to do all those things, did that still happen during the second? No, no. Second base of Mikdash was sad. So then why don't we it was like, because we have a mitzvah. To build a base amigdash. But it was actually almost like having a wedding reception, the whole reception, but the, the bride and groom never showed. <laughs> the sushi was good. <laughs> yeah, okay. For this, you can go to a sushi place. You don't need a wedding reception to have some sushi. Right? Yeah, it's like, no, but it was a nice reception. Yeah, right, the, nice. Define nice. What was nice? Chosen Kala didn't show. So, how was that nice? Uh, who was the reception for? For the guest. The guest of who? You get it? The guest of what? Of the wedding. Defined wedding. See, so second base Hamikdash is a little bit like that, right? It's a place for the divine revelation that, yeah, technically, I mean, practically is not present. Oh. So there's no divine revelation. I mean, you, there is, but you couldn't see it, you couldn't feel it. But let's continue. Although Jews lived under foreign rule, that foreign rule, the Persian rule, was very liberal towards them, let them live their religious life as they wanted it, and did not mix at all in the religious laws. It is at that period of time, we're talking, let's say, if you want still period of time, we're talking like late 5th century before the Common Era, beginning of the 4th century of the Common Era. We say beginning of the fourth century. I mean, it's like 399 downwards, because we're before. That there was a Jewish parliament that existed, but not a political parliament for like citizenship, a religious parliament. It was called the Great Assembly. The sages that sieged in it were called the men of the Great Assembly. It was a great assembly composed of 120 of the biggest sages. In its beginning, I'll give you some names that you might recognize. In its first session, amongst the 120, you had people like Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Mordechai. Ring a bell, Mordechai? Well, Mordechai, Mordechai? Yeah, yeah, Mordechai, Mordechai. No, you mean the like the celeb. Yes, the celebrity. Mordechai. Like the, the poor one, yes, that one. He's still around. Okay, and he is there. Parenthesis. Interesting piece of trivia. When the modern Jewish state of Israel was established, they decided that the parliament of Israel should be called the Knesset. Yeah. 
in reference to HaKnesset HaGdola, so the Great Assembly, and that there should be 120 parliament members in reference to the 120 sages. Big difference is that the Great Assembly that existed in the Second Temple was a religious parliament. It was only about religious matters. It did not deal with political administrative matters. It, it codified massive parts of what we have today as normative Judaism. Praying two, three times a day, the blessings we make, the order in which we make them, what we do. So many things, saying the Hallel, you name it. Okay, Hallel actually a little bit before. So many things came from that moment. Normative, formative Judaism. Actually, the reason why they codified so many things is precisely because the temple didn't have so much spiritual sway. So in a way, the temple was not diffusing the spirituality it used to, so everybody had to, um, I don't know if you say that in English, in French is an expression, like when you, there's not enough light, so someone is gonna have to go and pedal in the basement. See what I mean, dynamo, you know, like, because you're, you're not getting electricity, so someone's gonna have to go down to the basement and go pedaling. So basically, Danchek Nisadagdoilo gave us bikes and pedals. Saying, you're not getting enough light? Well, pedal away. You can create electricity. You can do your own. You ever heard, we daven, our prayers correspond to the sacrifices. Most people think that we installed prayers after the temple was destroyed. No, wrong. The prayers were installed as the temple was standing, but it was not strong. So we had to like complete it with our own. And that's how Jews lived. They had a kind of, in a way, they had a, a double allegiance. Jews lived under religious authority of the sages and under civil political authority of the Persians. Here come the year 335 before the Common Era, BCE. 335 BCE. 335 BCE, there's a new kid on the block. Anyone know his name? No, not yet. No, no, no not at all. He's the new kid on the block of world scene. Alexander. The new kid is Alexander. It's not Greece. Greece existed already, but was not. I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Alexander decides to avenge the death of his father who died in the battle that opposed Greece with the Persians. The Greek and the Persians had a go at it for a very, very long time. Uh, if you know about the story, not necessarily the movie, the movie as always is a movie, but the story of the 300 soldiers of Sparta, right? Those 300 soldiers of Sparta, which army are they stopping? The Persians. The Persians had the Greek we're having basically Persia was trying to expand, an empire always tries to expand the law of natural expansion. Um, and the way it was butting heads was Greece. Mm -hmm. it, it managed to overtake the Middle East, it went all the way to Pakistan, it actually stopped short of the, of the Hindu mountains, India. Uh, it, it, the Persians got to North Africa, they got to Turkey. And then you cross the Bosphorus Strait from Turkey, you come into Greece, 
mainland. And that's where got, things got rough. It didn't get rough for one year or two. It lasted decades upon decades, backwards and forwards. It's almost like World War I between France and Germany, of how many, how do you push the border? Huh? Yes, yes. No, but Persia, Persia was an empire. So that was the outcut of the empire. And basically, the, 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 the Greeks were pushing back. Alexander's father was, was uh, killed in one of the battles. And Alexander, who was a terribly charismatic man, his mentor had been none other than Aristotle. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, was Alexander the Great's personal mentor. He studied under him. He was a very intelligent person and also a great warrior because you couldn't become great in Greece if you weren't a great warrior. Is that why both of their names are the Greats? Um, yeah, that's historical. Well, <laughs> could be. They still were given that. Maybe he called them that after Aristotle was the Greats. The, always, the names the Great were always given by popular legend. legend. It's not doesn't have scientific value. One could dispute why some would have and some wouldn't have. Um, but Alexander was called Alexander of Macedon. Yes. Because he was from Macedon. Yes, yes, yes. At the time. Yes. He wasn't made the great until later. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So anyways, so so he decides to push back the Persians. But he's no, not but. And he is extremely successful. He doesn't just push them back, they literally roll over. He is, he's good. He's not just good, he's very good. He is, he's right up there with his man on the battlefield. He leads his man and, the, and, and he transformed the Greek army in an amazing war machine. And they just crush the Persians. They, the, the Persians don't stand a, a, a chance. And here comes, in the year 333 BCE, Alexander also arrives with his troops in Israel. Part of his conquest of the Persian Empire. Keep that in mind. He has nothing against the Jews. I don't think he knows about the Jews. No, seriously. But this is just a country. It's just a place on the map. And he stumbles upon the Jews. Now there is a very interesting encounter that happens on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Somewhere not far from where we were standing here today. Where Alexander the Great meets the last remnant of the man of the Grand Assembly. By that time that institution had stopped existing. By the way, history does not provide for any explanation why that institution stopped. There was no drama, there was no particular event, just it's there and then poof, it's not there anymore. Why? No, no, stop existing. Um, the last survivor, so to speak, of still that still had belonged to the man of the great assembly was a person, a rabbi, a sage by the name of Shimon. He was a terribly righteous person, that's why he's called Shimon Hatzadik, in Pirkei Alvais, in the, in the ethics of our fathers, right, in the first chapter, you have it over there, his mention, Shimon HaTzadik. He was the high priest, he was the Kohen Godel. And he, as, he, as you know, everybody knows that Alexander and his troops are coming towards uh, Jerusalem. Now, I'm opening a, a, like a half parenthesis, like brackets. The reason why they're coming on Jerusalem, Alexander had a very interesting um, approach. 
He had a kind of, you could almost say, a civilized approach. He did not want to completely crush and destroy a place that he conquered. He wanted the locals to actually continue to be who they are, but they should become part of the Greek Empire. Now, to do that, you always have to crush a little bit, just, you know, just to show who is boss. Um, okay, I'm going to give an analogy that is not right at all, but because it's done in a much more cruel manner. Alexander was not in that kind of, of behavior, but the Germans, when they conquered Russia, uh, Russia was an immense country, they didn't have enough manpower to actually leave soldiers behind in every village and every small city. But, you, but this country is not in control. You can't have, after it's an uprising in your back, in your flanks. So what the Germans would do, so whenever they would come to small cities or villages, they would assemble everyone. I'm not talking about not the Jews, I'm talking about the Russians. Actually, they did that in Poland as well. They would ask, who is, who is the priest? Who's the teacher? Who's the doctor or the pharmacist? So those three would come forward and they would shoot them point blank. And they say, have a good day, everyone. Why? So you cut off the head. Usually those are the intellectuals. Well, technically, you know what I said in the same thing when you took off first all the sages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, meaning you, you always, you, you impose your authority in a brutal manner, but it gets the message across. Mao would say Tung is going to take it to a whole different level. It's like, in, 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 instead of, instead of fight, instead of finding the 10 guilty people amongst a million and terrorize them that they shouldn't start, that they shouldn't uh, do whatever they were doing, just kill 10 random people and terrorize a million. Well, put it so coldly, as a psychopath, actually, my thinking that has some merit and credit to way of thinking. I mean, instead of finding the 10 guys who actually did something, just find 10 guys who didn't do anything. And, but make it known that they were killed for no reason, because you're a madman, and now everybody behaves. It's wicked, but unfortunately, that's how dictatorship and tyranny work in a lot of instances. Alexander is not a tyrant in that kind. On the contrary, amongst all the tyrant rules, this is he's the most civilized one. But still, you have to impose a little bit yourself. So you have to do a little bit of damage. And then afterwards, once you know you established who you are, then you can say, hey, but let's be friends. Um, but here comes Shimon Atzadik, dressed as a high priest, completely with his whole um, attire, and he meets Alexander. Alexander, as soon as he sees him, gets off his horse, and bows in front of him. And he tells those around him, and he says, this is the person I've been seeing in my dreams every time we're going, every night before a big battle. That's the person I've been seeing in my dreams. So he right away realizes this is a holy person. He says, what do you want? And Shimon Atadik says, listen, we welcome Greece. And they did. Was that real? He actually saw him in yes, dreams? Yes, yes, yes. He saw a mythical, he saw a mythical person. Spirituality was much more awakened in ancient times than it is today. It's not made up stuff. We today are maybe more knowledgeable in science, but we're much less connected with spirituality that is within the world. 
So basically, Shema Tzadik says, we're at peace with Greece. We have no problem becoming part of the Greek Empire. And Alexander decides to not touch Jerusalem. He actually does not enter the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't even leave soldiers there. As a sign of um, gratitude, the sages of the time will make a decision that every firstborn, I don't know if apparently for, it was only for a certain number of years, or maybe only for one year, whatever, that the firstborn should be called Alexander. And that's what happened until today. You have Alexander as a Jewish name, or in its more Ashkenazi form, Sender. Wait, who said that? The sages, the Chachamim of the time, it was a sign of gratitude towards Alexander. Yes. Can I ask something random? Yes. I'm going to answer only on condition that I can answer it very quickly. Okay, fine. Wait, is this, this not for Donald Is this where Julius Caesar comes from? No, no. Yeah, that's Leah. Okay, so, so now Jews are, well, now they are Greeks. Mazeltov. Life continues. Almost. Because, you see, here is something very interesting that happens. Two cultures that each, in their from their side, or should I say one religion and one culture, both felt very lonely, suddenly meet. And I'm going to explain what I mean. What I mean. Judaism was avant-garde, was really at the top of a lot of new ideas in, in humanism, in human rights, rights of slaves, rights of women, uh, religious ideals that were completely intertwined with human refined behavior. Judaism, as we know it, Torah, was very, very lonely for very long. Today, we all live, live in a world that is a Western civilization world that is based on what is called the Judeo-Christian values. You ask me, you can take Christian away from, from it. Because Christian didn't add anything. So just Judeo values. Why do you have to add Christian? Uh, Oh, I meant, unless you're talking about the Christmas tree. But if, if you're not talking about the Christmas tree, then I don't know which other values you're referring to. There's no other values. No one can say, uh, Judaism uh, and Christianity added the value of what? Of believing that someone is Moshiach or the Son of God. Yeah, okay, that depends if we consider that a value to begin with. Uh, but Modern advocacy recognizes that Judeo-Christian values is not a real thing. Yeah. It's not. Well, it's a contradiction of that. Well, that is, you have to be careful when people target religious origin, or when people target values that have religious ground, you have to be very, very careful if they come from a, the ground of sociology, anthropology, or they come from a ground with a, an agenda that can be a woke agenda that is anti-religious in its, so in its, in its essence. Them. So it's very difficult to make that case. It's very difficult to make the case that humanity was not deeply inspired by 100% Jewish ideals. Jewish, not Judeo-Christian. Christian, Christian I, I agree, take away Christian. For me, Christian didn't add a thing. No, no so I only Judeo. Oh, so Judean ideas, not Judeo-Christian. Yeah, because Christian was adapted from Judaism. It didn't add anything. It didn't well, add anything. It, it, only, it only recuperated Torah and used it as credentials to shove down the idea of someone being uh, Christ or God. Get it? But it's like, you're not, like, what is your idea of your own? Like, this is plagiarism. 
Like, what is your own idea? Beside Jesus, we got it. You are completely hung up with Jesus. Good. Now, besides that, what else do you have to sell? Well, the rest, okay, this is us. No, this, that's us too. That's us too. Okay, because you have nothing to sell. This is all us. You, you didn't make anything up. Nice. Some people say, yeah, Easter eggs. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Christmas trees. Okay, good. Exactly, exactly. And then, and then you'll talk with actually real Christian theologians, the, theologians, and say, well, actually, technically speaking, that's not really Christian. That's pagan. But so okay. Oh, so, oh, even you are saying that this is not something you said. Okay, let's get back on track because time is very scarce. So. Judaism was very lonely. What do I mean lonely? The, the way of life of Jews, where once a week you don't work, you give right to your servants. There's a certain way of behaving in society, in a couple, you name it. So many things with the poor, when you have to give the tithe, you have to give off, you have to make sure that people get this, like, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of humanism and socialism and etc, etc, etc. There's a lot there in Torah. But only Judaism had those ideas. The rare, all the civilizations around them were, were so, so, so um, brutal, non-refined, crass, materialistic, but in a non-refined way. The prophet Jeremiah defines the Babylonian culture as being a whore. And that's a prophet speaking. Most probably he said, I tried to come up with the most refined word that I could find. The Burj Persian culture is compared to an obese bear. I always found that, that title amusing because an obese bear, I'm not sure I would be able to recognize one. Yeah, because uh, like, say, as if you would tell me an obese cow. Like, uh, how, how, how do I know? How do I know which one is obese? So an obese bear, uh, well, that one over there, you see the big, big, big one? That's the obese. Yeah, bear is already quite, you sure it's not really like naturally obese? No, it's the obese bear. That's how the, what, what, what does it mean by that? It means very, very, so I don't know how you, very materialistic, magushendik, into materialism. Judaism comes with refinement. Be careful. Stay master of yourself. Give to others the human values, the social values, the spiritual values. And here comes an encounter between Jews who were very lonely with a culture that is Hellenism. And Hellenism is all about refinement and beauty. And the Jews are go, huh, hello. Wow, how come we never heard of you guys? And they really like excited. It's like, huh, it's like you it's as if you finally find someone that you can relate to and speak to, that understands you. Like, huh, that's refreshing. And the same thing went for the Hellenists. The Hellenist culture was also very, very much based on philosophy. What is who knows what the word philosophy actually means? Greece will give birth to philosophy. It's a Greek word, philosophy. What does it mean? What does philo mean? No one knows what philo means? Well, actually you do know, but in a context that is really, really negative, so maybe that's why you never thought about it too much. Children are like a pediatrician. 
pedo is a child. Love of children is pedophile. Oh, no, no, no. Right. So, so pedophilia. Philo means love. Of course, when you put pedo before, that's really bad. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's Exactly. Yeah. Philo means love, okay? So what does Sophie mean? Sophie means wisdom. The Greek word for wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. The love of understanding, of rationalism, and beauty. Now you say, oh, so those two cultures are going to go together wonderfully. Yes, in a way. But there's going to be a, a, what seems to be a small nuance, but it's going to be a massive gap. And I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. The nuance that is not a nuance, but it's a gap. In Judaism, everything that is holy is beautiful. In Hellenism, everything that is beautiful is holy. Hellenism. Can you say that again? In Judaism, everything that is holy is beautiful. And should be made the most beautiful possible. In Hellenism, everything that is beautiful is holy. So make things, if you can make them beautiful, you'll make them holy. So you should, you, in Hellenism, you start your way from below. You make things beautiful and that deifies them. It gives them holiness. Even a man can become God, which is an English word for apotheos. It's not used in English, it's used much more in French. But it's the same word, apotheos. In French it means like the top of the top. The literal word means apo, man, theo, God. Apotheos, a man becoming God. How can a man become God? Well, for example, if you can do the 13 works and you are Hercules and you can accomplish them wonderfully and, and climb Mount Olympus, then you will, then you will be with the gods. You're just Okay, so one second, but it's very good. We have a remnant of that. The remnant of that is the Olympic Games. It's a shallow, shallow remnant and vague echo. It's not at all what they actually were, because in ancient Greek times, it actually was about becoming a proteos. Try to be the biggest human being, like Hercules, where you, where you could do everything. Because if you can do everything and you're physically beautiful, pectorals, muscles, body structure. The Greeks are the first one to introduce in the ancient world human statues. Before that, statues only existed of gods. And it's so, it's so revealing. Why do they have statues of humans? That is beautiful. And beautiful is holy. And that is why without clothes, Naked. And even sports were done naked. In, in English, in, in ancient Greek, naked, a naked body is gymnos. A place where naked body exercises, gymnasium. Yeah, maybe someone should think about changing the name of the gyms. <laughs> you might get sued. Imagine a guy coming and, and, and exercising without any clothes in the gymnasium, and he said, Hello, that's what it says on the door, okay? If you want me to put on clothes, change the sign. It says, gymnasium, exercise in a naked attire. That's what it says on your door. I'm not responsible. You change your sign. Yeah, well, no one thinks about the sign, right? We just say gym. 
Yeah, like we say, Olympic Games. We don't mean becoming gods. We just mean eventually getting a medal. Or just giving a good time for people who are looking at their TVs. Uh, we don't really mean, and, and giving a lot of money for a lot of companies that work around the Olympic Games. Because uh, it's a big money business. But no one thinks about the Olympic Games in, in, in terms of, oh, let's see who's going to become a god this year. What? No one's going to become a god. Yes. Is watching Hercules a Huh? No. Now, you're talking Olympic Games? Or no, no, you know Hercules the Disney movie? It's like a Disney princess movie. It's, it's, it's science fiction. It's science fiction. Well, we actually... Okay. Okay, but all... Oh, by the way, even Hercules. Everything comes from Homeros, right? The works of Homer. We don't actually... So it's okay to watch Hercules. Historians tend to believe that there is some kind of truth. There's some kind of truth dispersed all over the story, but most of the stuff is just mythical yeah. uh, stuff that they imagined. By the way, let's talk about Homerus, right? The gods. Let's talk about the Greek gods as we discover them in the works of, of, of um, in, in French you say Homer. I think in English you say Homer. 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 Okay. Um, think about the Greek gods. I'm not talking about not apotheos. I'm not talking man becoming god. The actual Greek gods. If you think about the Greek gods, they're very, very human-like. Mm -hmm. They eat, they, they drink, they sleep, they sleep around, they cheat, they kill. Like, you think, hey, that reminds me of someone. <laughs> yeah, this looks like very human. Like, it's very interesting, because if you compare it to the Babylonian gods or to the Egyptian gods, they are like the god's son, Ra, the god of life and death, the god of death. It's like very like, whoa, gods. The, the Babylonian and Egyptian gods are like, God, God. The Greek gods are like a bunch of thugs. No, seriously. I mean, some of them are nice, some of them really bad guys. But this one has such a temper. Right. And this one and that one, right? Talking about uh, uh, Neptune. Or all, all, all the mythology, Greek mythology, has like all those stories of gods. But if you think about it, it humanizes the gods. It makes the gods like very, very simple. Okay, I have to speed up. <laughs> so, right. Jews and Hellenists and Hellenism, did it get along? Well, in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, it was almost a love affair. There is still up until today a halacha that obviously does not have any application anymore, but the halacha still stands. That a Sefer Torah could be written in the Greek language provided it uses the Hebrew characters, letters. But the language you could read it in English, and it's kosher. You imagine, you imagine we would have a Sefer Torah that, that would have been applied to English we would have something like this. Obviously without the Nekudot. You imagine this is the Allah, okay? Like in the beginning. Imagine me going, I, feel, I read in the Torah every Shabbos, and I go like, Amen, in the beginning of the... <laughs> Where are we? We're here. Like, like and the earth. <laughs> Was that why? Because it's, no, because they said the Greek language is a refined language. Actually, it bases itself. It bases itself on a verse in in Parshat Bereshis. 
where the three sons of Noah become the beginning of humanity, you have Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Shem will be the semi branch, branch from which Abraham will come. And then you have Yefet. Yefet means beauty. Now what does Noah say? Yaft Elokim le Yefet. God, you have given beauty to Yefet. May he reside in the tents of Shem. Meaning that that beauty should serve the divine. Cut. But here comes the problem. The problem becomes that Hellenistic culture will provoke a wave of Not assimilation, but a wave of I, I can't find the word of becoming less stringently or completely religious by a lot of Jews. A lot of Jews will pick up Hellenistic ideas, but will take it a step further and will start questioning ideas that can't be explained philosophically, rationally, things that seem outdated, things that, why should you do that? A human person, take for example, a human being is perfect. His perfection is his productivity. What is perfect in the fact that a human being sits idle for a whole 24 hours, not producing anything? That makes no sense in Hellenism. Productivity is the, is, the, is the key word. Produce stuff, then you're worth something. Why should you sit idle a whole day? Here goes Shabbat. And why would you want to mutilate a body that was created by the gods? Okay, we, I worked about, you mean gods. Okay, whatever, God, gods. Let's now become picky about the semantics. But it was created by the divine, single or plural. Why do you want to mutilate that? Here goes circumcision. Plus this whole idea of sanctifying time, that there is a moment that is holy, time was not a notion that is material enough for Hellenism. What is time? Time doesn't exist. You, don't, you can't say today is a holy day. That means nothing in Hellenism. Things are holy because they're beautiful. You can't say this is a beautiful minute. You hear it, right? It doesn't. Well, how can the minute be what, what you mean? What you do is beautiful. The, the minute itself is nothing. It's, it's air. But we have Shabbat. We have Yom Tov. We have Rosh Chodesh. We keep on saying, this is a holy day. Hellenism rejects those ideas. So in the beginning, it's only a clash of values, of philosophies. But a lot of Jews are going to go into the values of Hellenism. It's going to create some form, oh, here I have the word that I was looking for, some form of secularization. I stress the word some form, not complete secularization where you have Jews who don't care about Judaism anymore, no, but it's a very Hellenistic Judaism. It's a Judaism that fits, if you want, maybe you can compare it to conservative, not reform, to conservative Judaism. Well, as long as it fits with the values of the era. Sure, we're going to keep some key stuff, but we have to make it logical. Not saying that it's a... So, now if that would have been the end of it, it might have not been the worst. So keep in mind, we have a lot of Jews who became Hellenists already. 
How much? Well, let me bring you to this period of time. In the year 168 BCE, there's going to happen something. But for that, I'll have to explain a little bit more about the Greek Empire. Oh, I have to really, really speed up. The Greek Empire. After Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided amongst his three biggest generals. Antigone received the Western Greek Empire, where mm -hmm. the uh, Antigone right, received the initial, the, initial, the initial Greek Empire to the West, where Greece mainland was. Seleucid received the northern, northeastern Greek Empire, the Syrian going inwards towards uh, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. And the Ptolemy received the southwest, starting from Israel and going down to Egypt, North Africa, and Africa, etc., etc., and also the uh, little bit of the Arabian Peninsula. So it's very clearly defined. Now, those actually, in the beginning, they were like three states of the United States of Greece. So one state is called Antigone, the others say, so yeah, the states were called by the name of the generals. Okay. Like from Perkyavos? Yeah. No, 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 it's not the same guy. Oh. Same name, but not the same person. So, okay, Antigone, the, 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 the Western Greek Empire actually is going to get swallowed up by the new, new kid who is now coming on the block, which is the Romans, but they're not coming yet to Israel, okay? We're still 100 years from the Roman coming to Israel. But they are already taking whatever is around Rome. So Greece is around Rome, like, okay, you're gone. So the Western Greek Empire is gone. Now we're left only with two Greek states. The Northern Greek state, the, 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 the Seleucids, and the, the Southern Greek state, to which Israel belongs, the Ptolemies. Everything continued for the best of worlds from here, 333, when Alexander arrived to Jerusalem, till here. That's, make a count. 100, and another 33, and here I have to add another 32. So that's 165 years, okay? I have 160, that's, oh. Go back 165 years from now. Where are you? You're, you're in 1855. Someone should warn the, the Titanic crew, <laughs> amongst other things. Civil War? 1855, yeah, that's Civil War. 1855, that's 165 years ago. I mean, it's a long time, but on, on the scale of history, it's not such a long time. But it's a, but it's a massive amount of time at the same time, right? Like, uh, 65 years ago. It's like 1855. It's like, whoa, that's like... It's more than a lifetime. It's, yeah, of course. One generation is 40 years. 50 is like the real switch of generation is 40, 50 years tops. When, you're like, when your grandparents or someone names a singer that you never heard of. Who? Like the known singer, known singer. Who knows? No one knows him. <laughs> How is he a known singer? Never heard of him. Uh, they only have like the mythical ones, right? They go down into history, like the big ones. Um, 
by Yidin, Baruch Hashem, all the time, but even by, non, by non-Jews, they have like the big things, like the Beatles and those kinds of things. They, they, but they're the exception. Usually, it's a turn of a generation. Who knows who were the big fingers or actors 40 years ago? Huh? Yeah, maybe those are not. Anyways, so much time went by. A lot of Jews became Hellenized. But here comes the same thing else. You remember? The Jews belong to the, the southern, to the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies are 100% in line with the same approach Alexander had. Very liberal, very in, in, uh, including, like, this is who we are, this is Hellenism, take what you want, open bar. Okay? Like, it's your choice. Pick and choose. That's the way Alexander came. Here it comes. The Seleucid, the northern, some say because they started feeling the pressure from Rome, but that's another topic, decided to conquer the southern Greek state, the Ptolemians, where we live. Now you can say again, why should we care? The truth is we should not have cared. Because at the end of the day, what do you care? You were Persian, you were Greek, you were Ptolemyan, and now you're going to be Seleucid. The thing is, the emperor or the ruler of the Seleucid Empire was Antiochus IV. And he had a much more fanatical approach of Hellenism. For him, Hellenism was a religion-like way of life. It was a certificate of patriotism, of belonging to the Greek empire and culture. And you have to be Hellenistic. You cannot go according to non-Hellenist. And you see, if we, Israel, had been living in some off corner of the Seleucid Empire, he might have left us alone. But we were smack in the cross, at the border section between his empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. He, in no case, wanted that the people so close to his empire should not be faithful and patriotic to true Greek identity. And he's going to do something that was unheard of in the antiquity, unheard of, religious oppression. In antiquity, non-existent. The only, I'm using quotes, air quotes, for religious oppression that you could have had in antiquity is a king, a ruler that considered himself God and would ask you to bow in front of him as you should bow in front of a god. Yeah, that's religious slash political. It's not, I mean, it's like, it's not really religious oppression. It's, he thinks he's a god. But here, Antiochus, Antiochus IV, will outlaw big parts of Judaism. He will ransack the temple, spoil on his way to, to Egypt. He will come through Jerusalem, take away all that is of value from the Holy Temple. Everything, until the last vessel, the last silver cup, all gone. It's a, it's a razia, like he's completely changed. And in essence, the service, the worship, of the temple was interrupted. The Greeks actually afterwards even smashed the altar to pieces. They didn't believe in those kinds of sacrifices. It's where a beautiful culture like Hellenism became a religion. 
but Christianity later will do. And now you have to convert to it. You have to follow it. The thing is, for a lot of Jews, that was not an issue because they had already chosen it willingly. Remember? So it was an issue only for those who had stayed from, who had stayed faithful. What did they do? Well, they tried to flee as much as they could. Get out of the cities, go into the hills, go into the villages, try to stay out of the way of the troops, because they went Meshuggah. And here is where the story of Hanukkah starts. But listen carefully to what the beginning, the opening shot of the Jewish uprising will be. In a small Jewish city called Modi'in, there was a religious leader called Matityahu. He had five sons. He was very old already. He had five sons that were in their late 20s or 30s, maybe even early 40s, according to when we see how old he was already. And it happens to be that one day, a Greek unit, soldiers, enters the city of Modin, assembles all the people, builds a makeshift altar, and then asks, who is the village's elder? Matityahu. So they take Matityahu, and they say, sacrifice a pig. Not that it actually matters. To the god so-and-so. They did this on purpose to take away Jewish belief. By the way, again, unheard of in the history of antiquity that an empire should mingle in religious beliefs. You're like, who cares what people believe in? Middle Ages will hear of it, mainly Christians versus Jews. But in antiquity, unheard of. Now, Matisyao answers over my dead body, so to speak. So the Greek officers was ready to kill him when a Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, feeling sorry for the old Matityahu, said to the Greek officer, leave him alone. He's old. I'm not sure he even understands what's really going on. I'll do the sacrifice. The officer said, no, yes, should I? He decided, you know, I didn't want to get into trouble. The message should get across that you should make sacrifices to that other god. Okay, he said, fine, you do it. But before the Jew was able to do that sacrifice, Matisyahu got a sword, got hand on a sword, somehow, and shouted out, Mila Hashem Eli, whoever stayed faithful to God should join me, and killed the Jew. As soon as he did that, all the soldiers jumped on him. When the Greek soldiers jumped on Matisyahu, Matisyahu's sons jumped in bar fight. Anyway, you get the idea. Uh, it, it became a big, big mess. Eventually, it was a sole soldier, small unit of soldiers. They were taken by surprise. They were all killed until the last. But that was only the opening shot because the, the consequence is going to come. Like, like that's not a big chachma. That's not a big. That's not very. It's not very smart. What's your end game? The truth is, they didn't have an end game. They didn't have an end game. What's their end game? To be able to practice Judaism. And 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 win the Greek Empire? 
So how will they do that? They just wanted to be able to Yeah, but the Greek Empire doesn't allow them. They can't take upon themselves the Greek Empire. They yeah, but how do you do that? You're not powerful enough. The answer is, actually, they didn't have an end game. It's true, I could begin, that they wanted to practice Judaism, and if not, better die trying to do it. It's martyrdom. It's martyrdom. It's kamikaze. So sure, they fought the battles, one battle after another, but with, now I want you to analyze one second. What was the opening act? How did it start again? Who fired the first shot? Like, really the first shot? Yeah, how? By doing what? Oh. Because together with the uprising against Greece, it was also a civil war. And that's the story we don't tell. A bloody one. And that makes the Hashmonai, the Maccabi uprising, only even more less probable to succeed. Because if you want the civilian population to rise up against a foreign power, the minimum it needs is local backing. That the local population should be sympathetic to the cause. If the local population is not so sympathetic to the cause, oh, like, okay, statistically, almost no chance you can, you can, I mean, besides the ratio of the forces, which is already ridiculous that you think you're going to win the Greeks, but even if amongst you, it means that your hideouts are most probably, they're not hideouts. They know everything. It's not even that you have spies amongst you, it's not spies, you just have part of the population who don't agree with you, who, who say, why are you making problems? you want. I'm, I'm, making, I'm making a very, very not fair analogy, but I'm still going to make that not fair analogy. It's the not religious person who says to the religious person, why are you walking with such Jewish clothes? Don't you know this is going to provoke anti-Semitism? You wish that they needed a reason. Uh, but, but in a way, in a way, it's the Hellenist Jews, Hellenist Jews that see Hashmonaim Makabim as troublemakers. For sure, and then you have a Matisse who goes and kills one of them. Yes. Well, let's not go into the halacha aspect of it. Which no, can be defended. Even without that, like, okay, fine, so you can say Pinchas and all that stuff, fine, fine, fine. But I'm just saying, like, it's... Pinchas is actually way weirder. This is much more easier to explain. I actually... Macy's, no, 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 no. No, because come on, you kill someone just because he went with a non-Jew? Okay, man, chill. I Meaning you want to say, uh, calm down, huh? Emmanuel start killing every person who has oh, a... No, like yeah, start killing... Like, okay, but, but in the essence, killing every person who has a forbidden of sexual relationship, hello, what was this, Taliban now? No, meaning, uh, like, okay. But here, actually, it's a come to hell and his Jews were actually out to uproot Judaism. That has a special statutory, it's called Masis, the one who tries to push the Jews away from Torah. That, that is a real dimension. The fact that in his private life, a person had a certain a relationship, that... The pinnacle story is way more surprising for me. <laughs> Hello. Take care of your life. What do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah. It's true, but true, true. Because and 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 it didn't it didn't stop there. There was actual civil war. There was actual fighting. But here comes the miracle. No, here comes the surprise, and now I come to the miracle. After the uprising starts. 
in the year 167. Around 168, that's when he entered Israel and started the religious oppression. 167, that's the uprising. Mila Shemelai is the initial Jewish version of Alwaka. No, seriously. Okay. Like religious war. But Mila Shemelai, whoever is with God should come with me. And a lot of people followed them. There was still a minority in the grand scale, uh, scope of all the Jews. And here comes the surprise. They will fight for two years. They will have tremendous successes. Unbelievable successes. True, they will resort to some cases to guerrilla warfare, where they will have the upper hand in face of a more established, organized army on a battlefield. But sometimes they also go head on. Sometimes it's also head on battles. And we have accounts of those battles. Herodotus is a Greek historian, writes about that history. And they're smashing them to pieces. Literally, and I, it, it goes a little bit together with what? With the Bach Kachva uprising, remember? Almost like religious fanaticism. Same thing. Complete religious fanaticism, because it's martyrdom. It, they, don't, they don't care if they're going to die. And that's how they win. They're not careful. It just slides through. And the Greek are not prepared for that kind of battle. Not prepared for that kind of kamikaze warfare. Huh? For, right now. For right now, they'll have to rethink strategies, exactly. But eventually, the Maccabee managed to free Jerusalem. They go into the temple. And here is, hello, here comes, here comes the part which is not told. By the way, there's a book called the Book of the Maccabees. The Book of the Maccabees tells the story of all the battles and all the details. When they go, the Book of the Maccabees, it was written at that time. No, we don't have it. So it was written at that time. They come into the temple. The temple is desolate. The altar is smashed to pieces. There are literally no doors standing because all the doors had gold on them. The doors were taken. There's nothing left. There's not even anything left. We all think, that's what I told in the beginning, that they come into this kind of, I said, the sterile story, they come into the base of Mikdash, that is lighting of a thousand light, and the only thing they do is they start looking for pure oil. You're nuts. That's the last thing they did. Literally the last thing they did. The first thing they did is they, they fell to their knees and started crying. Because this is Chulban Bet HaMikdash. That was on today, today, 24th of Kislev. It happened on this day. And then, like real sabras, hardened Israelis, wiped their tears and said, okay, you do that. You go over there, you fix this. And they worked through the day and the following night to get the place to some kind of semblance. They actually didn't even know what to do with the stones of the smashed altar. It's Kaddish. They put them away special site. They said, we'll wait for a prophet to come again because we live in times with no prophecy. They didn't know what to do with it. They had to be, they build makeshift stuff. 
By the next day, the 25th of Kislev, they literally worked 24 hours to get the place a, a little bit of functioning. They took iron spikes, literally iron spikes, in which they put some kind of recipients on it, like they molded them, they put it together. And that was their menorah, because they had as a sage, what do you do if you have no menorah? The menorah, the, the, the actual menorah that existed in the Beth Amidash, the seven branches one, was gone. Of course it was gone. It was based out of gold. Think the Greeks would have left it? Those two years are horrible years of Greek, not only religious oppression, of Greek brutal physical repression, going into villages, killing children that were circumcised, and then hang them, by hanging them, on the neck of their mothers. And then, once they were dead, killing the mothers. Oh, that's the civilized uh, culture. Yay for us. Um, it's war. It was all out war. Like, that's it. No more gloves, no more anything. It's all out war. It's brutal. Two years. When they come into the base of Megdash, they, true, they can't believe their luck that they, how, how did we pull this off? How did, how did we win those battles for two years? Which is amazing. Like, what? They come, they put the Beis back somehow, and they, on the 25th of Kislev, they re-inaugurate the service that was destined for a couple of years already. You know how you call an inauguration of something? Inauguration of a, of a house? So houses buy it. How do you say in Hebrew, inauguration of a house? Chanukat habayit. They declared the 25th of Kislev Chanukah. Because they inaugurated again the second temple. After they had been destroyed almost. Okay, sure, there were some walls still standing, but they were basically being destroyed. And they did find some pure oil. They found a little bit of pure oil. Forget the stories that they were looking all over. I promise you they were not. Because they had bigger problems than pure oil. Between us, don't tell anyone, it's the best kept secret, in absence of pure oil, you can light with impure oil. Which is how I base my statement that they were not looking for pure oil. Understand? Because it's not an issue. I mean, hello, the countryside is still at fire and flame. Look how the base of English looks like. Pure oil, stop being so from, okay? But this is not the biggest problem we have now. Pure oil. But they did happen to find the pure oil. Okay, mouth up, we have pure oil. One day we'll see tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll use not pure oil. Another story. It was a detail. So they poured that oil, they lit the menorah. They did what they had to do. The war was still going on. The war was still going on. It's just that they had kicked the Greeks out of Jerusalem. That's all. You want a battle or a couple of battles. You didn't want the war. And then they come back a day later and they see the menorah still lighting. So someone goes and checks and sees that the oil is still full. Did you add oil? Did you add some oil? Okay. 
What does that mean? And then it dawned on them. Even in the times where the Beis HaMikdash was with no divine revelation, they just received a divine wink. And that's the joy. It was the way of God telling them, even if I don't show myself, I'm here. That's why the oil. He said, because the oil was the divine wink. It was a way of telling us, I'm with you. I have my reasons why I'm staying quiet. I didn't go anywhere. The war will continue. For another, hold yourself. You remember World War One? how long? Four years. Four years. World War Two. Yeah, six, technically, yeah, 39 to 45. I mean, we go from one end, one down to six years. So six plus four is ten. Two world wars together is ten years. In Israel, the war with the Greeks will continue for another 25 years. Eventually, they'll come to come some kind of ceasefire agreement. You could say that the Hashmonaim won. They won by wearing the Greeks out. Israel had become their Vietnam. Well, literally, it was like this small place, and it's like, why, why are we continuing this? You know what? Forget it. In the beginning, there's always this urge of we invested already so much, now we have to win, and then comes the opposite reasoning of saying, you know what? It's just not worth it anymore. How many more body bags? And it's just, just forget it. So if you cop out, yeah, it's not a win. It's not technically a loss if you decide to stop. Depends how you want to swing it. Uh, it's who, who controls the narrative? Uh, you didn't technically lose. You stopped fighting. You didn't lose. You just like you tapped out. Stop. I, I stopped fighting. Yeah, some will say that's called losing or not. Whatever. Uh, so, so the Greeks actually didn't really tap out. They they came to an, an, an arrangement with who? With Shimon, the last surviving son of Matityahu. Yeah. Matityahu had five sons when he had started. 27 years earlier, right, when it was all over, four out of five had died in battle against the Greeks. Yehuda, Yohanan, Yehonatan, Elazar, they all died in battle. So Hanukkah is not a story about yippee yay um, you know, like, we came, we smashed them to pieces, we won, it was awesome. So, yeah, no, that's not exactly what happened. Okay? It was extraordinary that you even managed to have some wins, and at least enough to get back the temple working, and you deserve a divine wink. Hashem showing you that even in the greatest darkness, He was still here with you. That's what Hanukkah is about. That's what we celebrate. That's why in times of exile, that's what we celebrate. And then we know that God is always present, even if He doesn't reveal Himself. But He's here. They saw it. I many times tried to put myself in the shoes of those Maccabi warriors, those Hashmonaim, when they were in front of those of the lights, because it was they were all lit, okay? You lit it's not like the Hanukkiah where you lit one, then two. But they were in front of them and and they were realizing that this was a miracle. I love many times I try to imagine myself being in their shoes. 
Knowing myself, I think most probably I would have cried because it's it's like pinch me if I'm not dreaming. Because Hashem has been gone for 200 years. There's no prophecy, there's no nothing, there's no magic. There's, like, no, this can't be happening. Not like what we get a miracle in front of our eyes, literally in front of our eyes. A miracle. And then like the next day and the next day, I can't even start imagining the boost to morale. Like the validation of everything they had sacrificed. Because it was a lot of sacrifice, family sacrifice, you name it, etc., etc. But it was a validation. Well, you're doing the right thing. You're on the right track. Wow. I think that's why I think that in Hanukkah they didn't give the mitzvah that you have to say l'chaim and drink and get a little bit drunk. Because I think they were just drunk on unhappiness of this divine revelation that I had in front of them. That's it for this Hanukkah class. I wish you a good Hanukkah. And uh, we should uh, see ourselves on other joyous occasions.